welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Now, when we began to talk about this series and we're told we could pick a psalm to teach on, I immediately claimed Psalm 139. I think I was the first one to pick a psalm. I'm not exceedingly competitive, but if this was the World Series of Psalms, I won. Since both Mike and Dave frequently use sports analogies in their messages, I felt compelled to put one in too. So now we have that out of the way. But seriously, I did want to grab Psalm 139 before anyone else did, because it's beautiful and filled with depth and insight about God and self and so well-loved and... I didn't get too far into my study before I began to question my choice. I love this psalm, but what had I done? Fairly early in the process, I had a who-do-you-think-you-are moment. Actually, it lasted a lot longer than a moment. As I began to research what others had said and taught about Psalm 139, I knew I was out of my depth. I knew it was a well-loved psalm, but I had no idea how often this psalm is quoted, taught, and written about. There are dissertations written about Psalm 139, with all different takes, I might add. Sermons abound, and it's especially popular in political camps and on the women's retreat circuit. After all, I am fearfully and wonderfully made helps us feel better about our less-than-perfect bodies, right? This psalm is used to teach theology. We've got a bunch of the big omnis here in the passage. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Omniscient, God is is all-knowing. Omnipresence, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God is everywhere, eternal. Time and space are nothing to him. And we could include omnipotent, all-powerful, couldn't we? That hand that holds us fast no matter what. We see God as the creator. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. We see his sovereignty. All the days ordained for me are written in this book before one of them came to be. And this same verse beautifully gives comfort in death and as we face uncertainty. There is a lot here. This is an amazing psalm. It has it all. But in all its beauty, it can also feel frightening. There's this relentlessness of God that I can't get away from. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Isn't always comfortable if I want to break a time out from God. And then, of course, let's throw in Psalm 139, 19 to 22. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men, etc. What is that about? Picked the beloved Psalm 139. I am not a scholar. I am not a theologian. I'm a bundle of tangled emotions and feelings, and I picked Psalm 139. Who do you think you are echoed through my brain? 
Yet somewhere in my downward spiral, I remembered that the Psalms are first and foremost poems, poems set to music, poems that are heartfelt, heart-wrenching prayers, poems that are hymns of praise and thanksgiving. Dave reminded us of this in his introduction to the Psalms, didn't he? The Psalms are not written as theology text, though there is theology in them. They are not to advance agendas or even make us feel better about ourselves or our circumstances, though they often do. They are poems. And poems, though sometimes examined and analyzed and used to teach, are above all meant to be experienced. Richard Rohr said, good poetry doesn't try to define an experience as much as it tries to give you the experience itself. It tries to awaken your own seeing, hearing, and knowing. It does not give you the conclusion as much as teach you a process where you can know for yourself. This morning, my prayer is not that we figure out this song and go away feeling smarter, but rather that we enter in and experience Psalm 139 and in the process know God and self a little more. So with that in mind, will you pray with me? How we recognize today that such knowledge is too wonderful for us, too lofty, for us to attain. And yet you, the God who created us and knows us completely, invite us to know and be known. Open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, our hearts to a knowing that leaves us in humble awe of who you are, creates a desire to know you more, and awakens a hunger to know ourselves as you know us bringing us ever back to you. Amen. A few months ago, I listened to a sermon that unsettled my way of thinking. It was entitled From Belief to Knowledge and was based on the life of Peter. There is so much beautiful mystery in our life with God, isn't there? And learning to embrace that mystery and walk in wonder is something I have found both freeing and exciting. But often, when as in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain, when I come across such lofty things in scripture and life, I, without even recognizing it, revert back to putting things in neat little boxes that make sense in my mind. And knowledge and belief are two words I had created boxes for. Knowledge, knowing, was a head thing for me. I would say things like, I always knew God loved me, but there was a block between my head and my heart. Meaning, I found it difficult to feel God's presence, to experience God's love for me. Belief, on the other hand, was more tied to faith, and action and experience. You've all heard it. The speaker puts a chair in front of him or her and says, I can say I know this chair will hold me, but do I trust it, believe it? Believing true faith is when I sit in the chair. 
sitting in the chair equals trust, which goes with belief, which has an experience piece to it. Neat and tidy. So knowledge, head, belief, heart. The boxes worked for me. And then came this sermon where I needed to crack open my boxes. The pastor talked about the word yada. Forgive me, Hebrew scholars, for my mispronunciation. But this is a word often translated in our Bible as no. And it is so much more than head knowledge. It isn't theory or knowing facts like two plus two is four. It is relational, experiential, an intimate knowing involving the senses, feelings, our bodies, our whole being. And it is the same word used when Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived. This is an intimate knowing, an experiential knowing, a relational knowing. Tim Haig from Torah Resource says of this word, the concept of knowing something or someone takes on a special meaning in the Semitic languages. And this specialized meaning has to do with relationships and primarily a relationship that is based upon the making of a covenant. So there's an agreement here, a belief, a trust, a sitting in the chair, but it is based on relationship. It involves intellect, but again, in the words of the pastor who broke my tidy boxes, it demands experience. So back to Psalm 139. The word yada, no, occurs seven times in this passage. There is much we learn about God. It's full of intellectual truth about who God is, but that is not the point, at least not all of it. This amazing poem was written by a person who knew God experientially and who understood that God knew him or her through relationship and desired to know self in a way that drew them ever closer to the God of Psalm 139. So let's start with knowing God. I've already pointed out a few things we can know, or shall I say believe, about God from this psalm. He's all-knowing, all-powerful, beyond time and space, eternal, sovereign creator. But how does one not just believe this, as in a creed, I believe in God the Father, almighty creator of heaven and earth, but know it so deeply that it overarches everything we do and say? I always thought this psalm was written by David. After all, its title is for the director of music of David, a psalm. And some scholars do attribute it to David. But like all psalms, we don't really know. Yet whether David or another wrote this poem, it is universally agreed to have been written by someone going through crisis, someone who intimately knew fear and pain. This is someone who has made their bed in the depth or in some translations, Sheo, the netherworld, the place of the dead. The King James Version said, if I make my bed in hell. That isn't something one throws out when life is going great. 
This is someone who has said, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Perhaps even someone who desired that at times. The author of Psalm 139 had found God to be present even in the worst times of life. The poet knew God so well that he could say confidently, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. All of us have an image of God, a way of seeing God, whether we realize it or not. And that image changes everything. It affects the way we live and interact with God. It affects the way we see ourselves. And it affects the way we interact with others. I was in a class once where we were asked to reflect on what picture came to our mind when, as children when we heard the word God. For me, the image was immediate. We had a picture in our home of Jesus. I tried to find it to show it to you, but came up short, so I settled for this classic that was in my grandparents' home. The one in my home was similar, but Jesus was in red and looking straight at you. What the picture in my home said to me was, Jesus is sad. I guess he loved me. But he was always disappointed in me because I just couldn't get it right. Whenever I looked at it, Jesus seemed to be saying, Colleen, 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 you did it again. He was sighing heavily. Would I never get it right? And the answer was clear. I would not. It was like the verse of Jesus loves me we sang in Sunday school. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should. Jesus loves me when I'm bad, but it makes him very sad. And this image of Jesus went perfectly with the never smart enough, never good enough refrain that I walked most of my life with. Jesus knew everything about me. Before a word was on my tongue, he knew it completely, and he knew it wasn't going to be good. I so believe this lie, which I thought was truth, that there was a time when I truly believed the world would be a better place without me. The darkness threatened to overwhelm me, and I did not have the experience with God where I knew even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. All of us have an image of God. I believe one of the first steps in knowing God is understanding who we see God to be. Is your God a judge waiting to condemn a grandfather good but not very relevant, a buddy who doesn't ever challenge, a disappointed father, a critical mother, a faithful friend, probably a combination of many people and circumstances life has brought your way. Maybe like I did, you know the right answers, but you don't feel the presence. Who is the God you know intimately, experientially? relationally. 
some of us must first learn to rewrite our narrative of who God is. And Jesus is where we start. Jesus is God embodied. We need to live in the Gospels, prayerfully asking God to show us himself. For God so loved isn't an attribute, for God so loved is the attribute from which all other attributes flow. God cannot be separated from love, for God is love. And, but we can't just think this into being, can we? For many, healing is needed, for there is a block between our belief that God is love and our experience of God as love. We need help. Our image of God is often connected to our experiences with parents and others in authority, and we can't just will that to change. If this is you, be authentic. Ask others to walk with you into this journey. Ask for healing prayer. Speak with a counselor or a spiritual director and understand that healing may take time, a lifetime but it can come. Light can come into the darkness. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now, I feel compelled here to talk a bit about the fear of God, because this is also a real part of knowing God. I'm going to call it a healthy fear of God. The God of Psalm 139 is not a pushover God, a God who turns the other way when we boldly step out of his will. The more we know God, the more we know we don't know God. The psalmist says such knowledge, such knowing is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. This amazing, mighty, powerful, and loving God is not always a comfortable God. Knowing God means knowing that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And there is some healthy fear in that. Not a fear of God striking us down or always being disappointed, but an awe, a holy wonder that God is God and we are not. Awe is a complex feeling, a combination of reverential respect mixed with fear and wonder. Humans can experience it in a distinct and profound way, and it serves as inspiration, a catalyst for change, transformation. We are completely, intimately known by God, and there is some healthy fear in that. He knows that we are dust, and that is sobering. But this healthy fear is also freeing. You have searched me, Lord. You know me, the psalm begins. Hiding is such hard work, isn't it? All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I can spend a lifetime trying to figure out what I was created for, my purpose, and that matters. But this God already knows me completely. He has always known me, and the pressure is off. Meredith Dinsdale wrote this poem based on Psalm 139. Notice how she connects awe and being known by God. 
suggest, if you want to, closing your eyes and just letting these words flow over you. Mountains are your majesty, and flowers touch delicately, oceans churn with veiled world, and rivers carve their freedom. Yet you know me, for you made me. In the midst of the mountains and the coast of the seas, my purposeful creator is in your image you made me, and I'm ready to know who you wait for me to be. Your perfect water sculptures made with icy breath halts misty haze, then summer sunset colors drip off the quill of you, my creator, on the banks of raging rivers under illuminating canopies. My purposeful creator is in your image you made me, and I'm ready to know who you wait for me to be. I'm ready. Open your eyes, for this poem brings us to the final knowing, knowing self. You see, knowing self and knowing God cannot be separated. Bernard of Clairvaux said, know yourself and you will have a wholesome fear of God. Know God and you will also love God. You must avoid both types of ignorance because without fear and love, Salvation is not possible. Without knowing of self, we have no knowledge of God. The psalmist knew this. This has been echoed by saints throughout history. Blaise Pascal, to know God and yet know nothing of your own wretched state breeds pride. To realize our misery and know nothing of God is mere despair. But if we come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ, we find our true equilibrium. For there we find both human misery and God. And this classic prayer from Augustine of Hippo, help me to know thee, O God. Help me to know myself. That is all. I wonder if Augustine used Psalm 139 as his guide to pen this short but important prayer. Verses 22 and 23. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This psalm started with, you have searched me and you know me. So the author was under no illusion that God wouldn't know what was going on with him unless he allowed it. He knew God already knew Rather, he ends with an invitation for God to open his eyes to know himself. Not the way he wanted to be seen, but for who he really was so that transformation could happen. Lead me in the way everlasting. God is not hindering the way everlasting. God's shalom, his kingdom come in our lives and our world. But sometimes we are. It all brings me back around to my original question that sent me spinning when I started studying this psalm. Colleen, who do you think you are? I am known completely by the one who made me who fearfully and wonderfully made me with a purpose 
stand in constant need of a savior. Full circle I come, back to knowing God. Just as knowing God is lifelong and I expect all of eternity process, so is knowing self. We are masters of deception, especially when it comes to self. From birth, there are so many voices telling us what we should be, what gives us value. Without even knowing it, we create a false self that works for us. For many of us, it becomes how we survive. But it's built out of wounding, not love. And to see behind the carefully constructed self we created for the world can be painful, hard work which cannot be separated from a loving God. David Banner, when speaking of this journey, said, it requires a relentless commitment to truth and a deep sense of freedom from fear of rejection. Nothing facilitates this like the knowledge of being deeply loved. Benner continues, spiritual transformation involves the purification of sight. Jesus said that if our eye is healthy, our whole body will be full of sight. We have to learn to see and accept what is really there. Stripping away our illusions is part of this process as it reorients us toward, etern toward reality. To see God as God is not as who we want God to be requires us to see ourselves as we actually are. For the same cloud of illusions obscures our view of both God and self. Now there is so much that could be said here, and we don't have the time today. Again, this is a slow process, and I dare say it needs to be slow. God, in his love, will open our eyes only when we are both ready and safe to see. And just as mentioned earlier, this part of the journey is not meant to be traveled alone. If you would like to know more about that or you have questions, you need someone to walk with you in that, I encourage you to call the church office. But go slow. Be patient with yourself. Trust the Spirit's slow and gracious work and walk with others who are also seeking to both know themselves and know God. Now, some of you have noticed that I haven't touched verses 19 to 22. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? Abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. David, or whoever the poet is, what are you thinking? But maybe that's it. What if the poet isn't thinking in an intellectual way at all? He's feeling. He's in crisis, maybe in danger, and he speaks what God already knows he's feeling. Some commentaries claim these verses speak of the justice of God and that the psalmist is aligning himself with God, hating the things God hates. It could be. But what I find interesting 
it says this little rant leads directly into the invitation to be searched, examined, tested, to know self as known by God. Full circle. Knowing God. Being known by God. And knowing self as known by God. Full circle. Knowing even the ugly parts about self and willing for God to reveal the truth about those parts, which leads back again to God. Lead me in the way everlasting. One fun thing I did while preparing for this talk was to read poetry inspired by this exquisite poem of Psalm 139. So as the band comes, let me read one more written by theologian and philosopher Martin Buber. Where I wander, you. Where I ponder, you. Only you, you again, always you. You, you, you. When I'm gladdened, you. When I'm saddened, you. Only you, again, always you. You, you, you. Sky is you, earth is you. You above, you below. In every trend, at every end, only you. You again, always you. You, you. You. 